0: ADAL's Master Gardener, Bob Olin. And away we go with the Bob Olin Show on a Tuesday. It's uh, the 27th of September already as we're approaching October quickly. And we got our first uh, real widespread frost overnight with uh, some places down in the upper 20s to low 30s. And even more on the way for tomorrow morning, apparently, Bob, as we'll see some widespread colder temperatures around 30 here in Duluth tomorrow night
1: or yes, actually we uh, tonight tomorrow morning tomorrow morning yes it'll be tonight and uh i hope folks that were outside and away from the lake it was kind of classic if you have some <laughs> lake effect uh, we didn't feel it last night or yeah. early this morning but uh definitely anyone away from the lake uh, had cooler temperatures and as you said upper upper 20s i'm sure in the northern part of mm-hmm. our listening range and then uh, lower 30s down around 30 where i'm doing a fair amount of my growing so it was a it was definitely a frost, and tonight's going to be colder as well. So uh, I think covering is probably going to be the order if you manage to slip by the first time. It's often characteristic. If you can get through that first frost, and we have a warming period, and that's what's in the forecast coming up. So mm-hmm. tomatoes, which we need a little bit more time for to ripen because we got off to a lowly uh, slow start there. Uh, certainly uh, frost-sensitive materials if you're growing peppers, you're growing eggplant, those all have to be protected and covered. And if you're a ways away and if they're predicting upper 20s, when we get down to much below 30, it almost takes a double wrap to, uh, to make sure we get through the night. Then we get through that, and uh, we'll warm things up. If the plant's still alive, we'll continue to build sugars and increase the size of fruit uh, as we go into the fall here, Dave.
0: What is the best thing to cover up your plants with? I mean, do you use a sheet or something maybe a little more substantial?
1: Well, you know, you have lots of different options, and I'm glad you asked that because uh, any any kind of a fabric is going to have more insulating uh, properties to it as long as it isn't wet and it looks like it's going to be dry. So, actually, there are some actual covering materials that are manufactured for this purpose. One of the big name brands out there is Remay, and uh, there we can get about four degrees of frost protection. With, uh, frost. with We call them frost blankets. You can drag them across. Uh, And, of course, uh, sheets are going to be better than plastic. Plastic's better than nothing, but uh, (laughs) if you're going to use any kind of plastic, I would recommend a black plastic rather than a uh, clear plastic. Clear plastic, uh, we can heat very quickly, so you can use it, certainly, but you don't want to put it on when there's sunlight, uh, so you wouldn't want to put it on at noon today, as an example. Mm. And uh, you want to make sure you get that off in the morning. So for covering material, if you're going to use plastic, I usually recommend... uh, black that gives you leeway you can leave it on there there is a little transmission on the actual black surface to the plant tissue but you don't superheat underneath it there's nothing worse than protecting from frost and then uh, killing the plants with too much heat on a bright <laughs> day following up the next morning when you don't get it off so you have lots of different options uh, fabric certainly is, it gives you more frost protection but uh, certainly a uh, black plastic is going to work for you as well.
0: So you don't necessarily need to uh, harvest your stuff if you can get it covered up here over the next uh, night.
1: Well, harvesting is definitely an option. But mm-hmm. if you've got green plants, and, and as with a lot of our tomato crop, it's very late this year. Right. And uh, if we got a warming period coming here to keep the plants alive, it's that green plant that, of course, produces the sugars. So you might want to hedge your bet anything that's uh, deep orange and close ripe, you can certainly pull those in and ripen them inside. But as long as you can protect the plant, anything that's uh, what we call green mature, that's uh, a fruit that, in the case of tomatoes now, fruit that's turned from uh, a deep green to a light green, almost a light yellow. Uh, that's considered green mature and actually with a green plant out there, you can continue to ripen those, particularly with a warming period coming up here.
0: Now if you got a patch of potatoes or stuff that grows underground, I suppose you don't have to worry as much.
1: Not as much with these temperatures. Uh, we don't want frost penetration. Now mm-hmm. Sometimes, uh, If you don't get them hilled properly, a potato, you'll have part of the tubers up on the surface. Uh And more than likely, that's going to freeze down. So you want to get out there and anything on the surface, I would be harvesting because you can make good use of it now. Uh, If it does get as cold as they're predicting, then anything on the surface will be damaged and potentially turn to mush and not have too much value for you. So anything on the surface or or then, uh, you know, half an inch of the surface, you can pull those potatoes out. Anything down below, we've still got some time for sure.
0: Even the big pumpkins, they're at risk?
1: Well, uh, to give you an example, I covered everything last (laughs) night, collected and covered. I wasn't going to take the chance. Uh, Tonight, I'm afraid it won't uh, turn them to mush, but uh, the surface of the pumpkin, we get kind of a bubbling effect if we get temperatures much below 32. There's that old expression, frost, on the pumpkin, but Mm -hmm. frost and freeze are different. Frost, uh, you know, we get uh, 32, 33, and we crystallize a lot of the uh, moisture in the air. And we get a little frost on the pumpkin. That isn't going to damage. But I think we've got temperatures that are going to be colder than that. If it's going to be 30 in Duluth where there's lake effect, we know over the hill, and any place a little farther south, farther north, uh, it's going to be uh, considerably colder than that. So you do want to get even the pumpkins protected or in and harvested.
0: All right, Bob. Now what about the old apple crop? How is that going to be affected (laughs) by the cold?
1: Uh, people do ask about harvesting apples. You know, mm-hmm. first off, we got them up off the ground and cold settles. Settle. So we'll have warmer temperatures the farther uh, up we go, the greater the elevation. So mm-hmm. most of the fruit on the trees, and once again, we've got uh, plenty of green tissue out there. So we're probably not going to be increasing the diameter or the size of any of this fruit. We're definitely going to improve sugar content. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, late-maturing apples, Harrelson, Harrel Red, Sweet 16, these are mature uh, relatively late uh, we still want to build sugars and once again they were impacted by a cold spring and a, a growing season that was about average in nature and a lot of these really need a little more time to mature so we get this uh, we get this expression they don't want to harvest a certain uh, late maturing uh, uh, apples until after a freeze uh, the temperature isn't as critical as the amount of time so it depends on when that freeze comes we want them on the Tree, as long as we've got green leaves there, and as long as it doesn't get too cold. Mm. What is too cold? Well, when we're getting down in the 28 degree range, even up on those uh, trees, which are the fruit that's elevated, I would definitely be harvesting. So watch your temperatures. I think some apple harvest may be appropriate for people that are over the hill or farther north. I know we got a lot of listeners on the Iron Range and. Uh, pretty cold up in the hiving area, so I think I'd be pulling down some of those apples as well.
0: All right. Well, we certainly got a bountiful supply of them on my tree. There is more apples than I've seen in a long time, but uh, they are pretty it small is. yet.
1: So they're small. Well, I, I think what you can hope for is just, uh, mm-hmm. again, improving the sugar content. The diameter isn't going to go up any farther. You All have right. uh, one of the original winter hardy. Now there's a difference between a winter hardy tree and Maybe in the next segment we can talk a little bit about the history of apple breeding. You know, this obviously isn't apple country, and yet we had this great introduction called the Honeycrisp, which is apparent (laughs) to many more new varieties that have come along. And uh, the University of Minnesota, even though we're not a big apple region because of our colder temperatures, has got some introductions that really went throughout the world, and people are a little surprised. You know, when we think of apples and apple production, it's mainly the Pacific Northwest where Mm -hmm. they have huge breeding programs. They have all that. The winter temperatures are tempered by the Pacific Ocean. But here we got this uh, nice program going, University of Minnesota, and they've had several uh, very successful introductions. Maybe we can talk a little bit about Harrelson and sure. the history of your tree after the break. Game.
0: All right, we'll take a break and be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show, 924 now at KDAL. And we're back. More of the Bob Olin Show. Bob, we're going to talk some apples this time around.
1: Yeah, it is that time of year, and... Um, already had the apple apple fest we have got a couple others there are no coming up i believe aren't they when is the bayfield apple fest i'm not sure
0: is? it's this weekend it might be the following
1: weekend yes I, uh, we'll have to look into that uh, but uh no yeah, you, you know, mentioned is uh,
0: the- yeah northwestern u.s very famous for apples but i guess the bayfield peninsula is a pretty good apple grown area too
1: right right absolutely you know that that is a very unique climate and uh, when things started to warm up lots of discussion about the uh climate change and things warming now it's interesting we're not seeing those same effects here we had a very very average temperatures during our summer we had a very cold spring of course may was cold with the snow early and the temperature was down for the whole month of may Uh, moisture levels were up just a little bit when we look at the the climate uh, statistics for the year we're going to turn out to be within a fraction of a degree uh, just about average so in terms of day temperatures as well as evening temperatures yeah, I just checked here that the what uh, we're going to check on the uh, Bayfield Fest, we should know when that's coming up <laughs> because that's such a uh, such a great big uh, yeah
0: seventh, eighth, uh, and ninth.
1: Oh, thank you very yep. much,
0: for So uh, it is uh, the thank, week after this coming weekend.
1: There, there, there. We really want to know that. So they're going to mm-hmm. wait just a little bit longer, and uh, we've got that uh, that squared around at least. Uh Bayfield uh, Bayfield Peninsula running out into Lake Superior, of course, is unique. It is, in fact, Zone 5. I was going to say when things started to warm up here, we had people saying, well, Duluth will now be Zone 5. <laughs> we traditionally have been along the lake, Zone 4, over the hill, Zone 3, Zone uh, 3A and 3B. We had a lot of Zone 2. Now, that's one thing that has gone away, and these are determined, these uh, climate zones are determined by the the average low extreme temperatures during the winter. So they're just in reference to cold winter temperatures and winter hardiness of plant material. So that's what we're referring to there. We had a lot of zone two areas in St. Louis County. Those pretty much gone away though. The latest revision from USDA plant hardiness zone uh, map indicates that uh, all of uh, St. Louis County at least is uh, zone three, probably along the border zone two, but zone three and along the lake zone four. But there was a lot of discussion. When you open up Zone Five, you open up a tremendous amount of plant material. that isn't necessarily hardy in this area, mm-hmm. and uh, really the Twin Cities in Zone Five. We've got uh, Zone Five sticking out there in that peninsula, surrounded by water on both sides. So that's why Bayfield has this nice advantage in terms of uh, growing many, many apple varieties. That doesn't mean we can't grow some tremendous apple varieties on the north shore of uh, Lake Superior. It's mm-hmm. been a challenge. And you know it's interesting, Dave. You've got one of the originals, a Harrelson tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're familiar with Honeycrisp. Everyone is right. a wonderful apple introduction that uh, came as uh, actually uh, a lot of hard work. About 30 years of work by David Bedford, the uh, uh, apple breeder, University of Minnesota at the uh, Fruit Breeding Station on uh, in Excelsior, Minnesota, just off Lake Minnetonka, and um, a long, long effort to actually produce it. Now there have been spinoffs. There's been some. Uh, recent introductions that have been fantastic. People have perhaps seen First Kiss or, or Sweet Tango in the store. They have a different way of introducing the newer varieties, but they've been able to step up the, uh, the amount of time or they've been able to reduce the amount of time it takes for new introductions and DNA fingerprinting has enabled this. In the past, they used to have to just, uh, take the crosses and these are all, these are not genetically uh, bred. These are they're traditionally crossed where you take pollen from one tree and you, Carry it to the flowers of another, mm-hmm. and then you take a look and you evaluate the fruit. The fruit gives you seed, you plant all those seeds out, and then you have to wait for those to come into production, which can be another eight, nine, ten years, and then you evaluate the variety. So it's a very long, extended process, and it keeps re- being repeated every year. They're still doing the manual crossing, right. that still occurs, but they're able to mark and they've got fingerprinting that occurs. So they can take a look at the DNA. So certain DNA characteristics, such as Christmas, so let's take a look at Honeycrisp. Uh, it's got a combination of sugar in there with that crisp characteristic that's very unique to Honeycrisp. And that, that was associated with a particular uh, gene complex there in the DNA. And then they can look for that in the new apples. So they don't have to wait uh, another uh, 10 years or several generations oh. to determine about it. They can actually determine, yes, this looks like a good... Uh, offspring like this, this fruit has good potential. Let's go ahead and let's, uh, let's follow that breeding line. So they've been able to accelerate the process a little bit, and we're seeing that with several new introductions, just not here, but, uh, throughout, uh, the United States and I'm assuming throughout the world. So we're kind of in a new era here. We're seeing this other places where I think we're going to have just a real prol- proliferation. We're seeing it already of newer varieties and some of them that are are very well suited for this area. Hardiness, Dave, is a critical thing. You know, uh, prior to the introduction of some of the uh, original Minnesota apples, uh, we had just crab apples in Minnesota uh, that were native to the area. They were not productive, not very sweet, and apples were extremely important to to the uh, pioneer community. Uh, It's very interesting where we're concerned about weight, weight loss, diet plans, and so forth. Now, there was a most of our history, matter of fact, most of mankind's history, person's kind of history, whatever term you want to use there, has really been about not enough food. And in, certainly in in parts of the world, that's characteristic. And, of course, the, the Ukraine war has raised some of those concerns uh, throughout the world. But we had those same concerns here in the United States, It's wonderful climate, uh, typically good rainfall, uh, good fertile soils. But we were still undernourished as a country. So it really took a lot of technology to bring this along. So the pioneers, they came west, they came from the East Coast. They had to store food over the winter. Mm -hmm. So potatoes, and we talked about that a little bit as being a significant crop, cabbage being a significant crop, and apples were very important as well. As a matter of fact, um, apples were so important. It was one of the first breeding programs at the University of Minnesota School of Agriculture because they wanted to encourage pioneers. If they could say, well, we've got varieties of apple that will get through the winter, so you can, in fact, store food on your farmstead and make uh, it through the winter yourself and uh, be ready to farm the next year. So the apple breeding program, one of the reasons it was—it inspired uh, and was part of the university program was to encourage new pioneers to come west with the knowledge that they'd be able to produce some of their own food on their own farms and make it through the winter. So it became very important. The first introduction Minnesota was... Uh, uh, by Peter Gillian. It was called Wealthy. And here's, you know what amazes me, Dave? Uh, we've got so many new introductions, and yet some of these original apples, the wealthy, the first to be introduced, eighteen sixty eight took him 25 years to actually find that selection, but that was the first actual eating apple introduced. Wealthy, it was named after his wife, which was her name, and she put up with this wild plant breeder. The story goes, <laughs> I mean, people that are passionate they forego everything. And I think mm-hmm. of we had this nice interview with uh Julie Overham that introduced the uh Cherry Frost uh Rose as well mm-hmm. as the uh the wonderful climbing or she spent uh 27 years actually wow. developing that. So the process it really takes dedication, Peter Gillian. Gideon, rather, he came along, and uh, he was looking for something that was good and winter-hardy. He had to make a decision between a new winter coat and buying some uh, seed from a breeder in upstate New York, and he made the decision to forego the coat and instead buy the apple seed. So it's kind of interesting. People think that he named uh, that first apple wealthy because he was a wealthy man. He died impoverished. <laughs> wow. So it's kind of an interesting story, and yet he made a contribution in that the wealthy Genetics is still in a lot of the Minnesota breeding program, and the wealthy itself, you can still purchase. I put in a trial orchard uh, this last summer with a, a nice community group, and we, I had to get some of the wealthies in there so people could yeah. really be familiar with what they look like. But, uh, you know, in addition, your Harrelson that you talk about, that was introduced in 1922. Mm-hmm. And uh, when when Honeycrisp came along, everyone said, "Well, that's the end of Harrelson. No one will grow Harrelson again." I was very skeptical because you have one of the hardiest varieties there. We don't have to worry about getting that one through the winter. But that again was a was a product the University of Minnesota breeding program. Again, looking for food that will, you'd be able to store. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing about apples and the original pioneers and why they wanted them and valued them so much is they contain sugar. And we don't think too much about that right now. We've got lots of sugar, lots of sweets. We perhaps eat too much of it as a population. Uh, but way back in the uh, mid 1800s, and in toward uh, the early turn of the 20th century, right. the 1900s, uh, sugar was very expensive. It was not. Uh, we didn't have sugar uh, beet production. That beet production came about uh, about the set time of the Second World War, when we had a sugar source there in the Red River Valley. But all the sugar was cane production, very expensive to ship. It came from either Florida or Cuba or some of the other uh, Caribbean islands. So sugar was valued, and the apples were valued for food quality, but also for the sugar content. So they could make a pie, they could make a dessert that was relatively sweet with using either very little cane sugar or none at all. So uh, sugar content became a very critical factor in some of these new apple introductions. But as we talked, your Harrelson is a is a hard firm apple it's a great pie apple and it's not a particularly sweet apple now sugar content is one of those characteristics going back to honey crisp that they're really looking for the public looks for high sugar crispness uh certainly uh winter tolerance and a beautiful nice sized colorful apple so there are all these different characteristics that go into some of the modern apples that we just kind of take for granted today but they have a long and storied history and a lot of uh really dedicated uh plant breeders both employed by the university by uh public breeding public companies private companies and by a community of real interested amateur gardeners they've been so responsible for the introduction of so many varieties particularly before the university of minnesota breeding program was well established so tremendous history that's come out of these and uh I look at some of this; those people that came before us, and uh, we should be very appreciative because uh, we've got a bountiful food supply, a, a very diverse food supply, and continuing to get more diverse with all the new introductions we're seeing to this date. All
0: right, got to take a break. Bob, first, let's uh, head to the phone. We have somebody waiting patiently to ask a question. Hi, who's this? Margie. Go ahead.
2: Good morning. Hello, Bob. <clears throat> um. I I do have a question, but first of all, i got to tell you, I have two apple trees, a Macintosh and a Cortland. Wonderful. uh, Yes, the Cortland last year was just full, but it had worms and uh, bird problems. Sure. This year, I don't have those problems. Uh, Somebody must have more apples than I do. But they are so heavy. I didn't pluck blossoms because there were so few. But the apples are huge, and they're just hanging, and no worms this year. Um, Yes. And they're delicious. They are absolutely the way my family likes apples, crisp and sour, you know, tart. We don't want them sweet. Okay. But my problem is I have four lilac bushes, very big, and uh, there's like a retaining uh, container around them. They're at the edge of the garden. And two of them are dead. I mean, I've lost all the leaves, and the branches are very despicable. And then there's another one about 10 feet away that is in the same condition. The two other ones are just fine. What am I going to do with? All, do I have to dig them out by the roots?
1: Yes, I think I'd take those out. Um, when did you see? When did you see this? Uh, we saw a lot of fire blight, a bacterial infection. Every year, you know, is, is so different. And yeah. uh, the the uh, weather conditions really determine this. Let, let's take a look. You had apple maggot problems with your apples last year. Yeah. Sometimes what happens is we, we get with insects. That's an insect problem, of course. And I'm assuming you're not using any pesticides, so you don't no. have a spray no. program. And I'm kind of the same way. If we get a bad apple maggot year, I'll just live with it. But yeah. uh, And that's where we're fortunate, not being commercial apple growers, where you can't live with it or yeah. you don't have any income for that year. So we can take it as it comes. But... What typically happens in an extremely bad year, we've got uh, the insect population has just exploded, and oftentimes when we have an exploding population, it crashes. It ultimately gets to the point where there are just too many. There isn't the food for them. We can have some weather that can interfere with it, a rough winter or one thing or another, and then we get a crash in the population. So for people that are really discouraged about insect uh, problems with their apples, Oftentimes, you're right at the peak of that population. It won't be bad the next year. Now, on your lilacs, we'll switch gears just a little bit. And, you know, I love the Cortlandt, too. They will get real sweet when you're you're a little ways from the lake. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. In Hermantillus. So, yes. Uh, and... uh uh, people that are listening, Cortland, I'm I'm pleased you're able to grow it there. Actually, some people yes. uh, really, um, we have to be closer to Lake Superior to get them to successfully get through the winter. Yes. So you've got a good site for that apple. It probably, you know, Cortland will sweeten up. But where you are, probably just a little cooler temperatures, you don't quite get the sugar content. But I'm no. with you. It's a great apple. Mac's a great apple. We've just got a history of some wonderful apples. Cortland, though, for most people over the hill, Uh, and uh, farther away from Lake Superior where there is no superior effect, uh, then I would be probably shying away from that variety. It's not quite as windy, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. I've seen it in the woodland area that's been nice and sweet. It's been just great. But uh, let's go back to your lilac quickly again. Uh, Tell me when you first saw the symptoms on the leaves. About a month ago. About a month ago. Okay. Yeah. You know, we have uh, we had this tremendous problem with fire blight this year, and fire blight can cross any number of different species. Uh, certainly uh, lilac, we saw it on rubis, on uh, raspberries. We saw it typically on apples. That's where it's the biggest concern. Yeah. spread to mountain, mountain ash. So I'm assuming that you were infected there as well, and that's a bacterial infection. It is what we call systemic barge, so it, it runs through the entire plant down yeah. through the plant, and in your situation, it looks like it's actually killed the lilac. Is that correct? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, so I think uh, they're dead, they're gone. Uh, they could come out this fall. Uh, there are a lot of spores associated with that dead material, so we want to make sure that we you get it a long ways from your property, a long ways from other uh, woody, uh, deciduous woody material. Uh, get it out, get it off the property or deep in the woods or buried someplace so it's it's not... Just sitting in the pile on the on the edge of your your apples yeah. where it can cause yeah. a problem because my biggest concern, the lilacs are tough, they're hardy, we can replace those, but I'd hate to have that spread under your uh, yes. your portlands or your macintosh. Yeah.
0: Yes. Thank you very well, much I for the call. It. Hey, we got to take a break, Bob. Nine forty-three. We'll be back. More of the Bob Olin show coming up. Nine forty-seven, and we're back. More of the Bob Olin show. Bob talking apples uh, this morning. Is Johnny yeah, Appleseed just a... Uh, 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 what did he have to do with the spread of apples across oh. the country?
1: Boy, you know, uh, as I recall, <laughs> i got to go back a long way. And, yeah. He was in... He was another one of these dedicated horticulturists ah. did, did it just a little bit differently. Instead of breeding it, he was encouraged uh, <laughs> trying to get the word out and trying to ah. encourage people to, to grow them, and I think some of those varieties that were acceptable. You know, apples are kind of a long-term proposition. Real quickly, we still have an opportunity to get some in the ground if you can find plant material. It's been very interesting. Ever since the, uh, the pandemic, there's been so much interest in uh, backyard gardening. And, you know, we had the pandemic uh, where people confined the home. Food supply wasn't an issue. Fortunately for us, it's, it shouldn't be an issue either, but prices are definitely going up. And uh, people are now looking at the economics of gardening, and that would include an apple tree or two. They're very valuable. Uh, they take a considerable amount of time to, to fruit. Some of them, uh, some that we really like, I mentioned sweet 16 a little earlier, great apple uh but uh, the ones that i had in the ground took about 12 years before they wow. finally fruited so i actually were we love the apple but you have to have a longer term pri- uh time perspective on those things uh we've got a newer one that was introduced came down from the uh, breeding program in Canada at the Ministry of Agriculture uh one called Prairie Magic that i mentioned that One of our nurserymen said, quit talking about Prairie Magic because we can't get enough of them in. But that's become very, very popular. It will actually set fruit in the first... uh, I've had it set fruit uh, in the first year, as a matter of fact. And uh, we like to kind of take those blossoms off the first year. It's not quite as critical on a a woody like an apple as it is on strawberries. A June-bearing strawberry, we always pull those blossoms the first year. But usually there isn't enough uh, to worry about the first year. But oftentimes second and third year, we'll get production the fruit is uh very sweet uh it's not quite as colorful not quite as red as some other fruits and it's a little softer apple comes a little earlier so that's a little bit of the trade-off uh all apples make uh, make a good apple pie what uh, you know you can't complain about an apple pie but certainly uh it's, it's probably not one of the premier pie apples because it's not quite firm and hardy enough it turns the mush uh, pretty quickly, the, the best pie apples, your Harrelson, or there there are several others of those very late maturing apples that probably uh, make a little better pie apple. I think that Cortland, that uh, our previous caller, Marge, there indicated, uh, you know, late and slightly on the tart side. That's what really makes a, a real good apple pie apple because they right. they tend to retain their structure a little bit. Dave,
0: let's head uh, back to the phone. Bob, we got another question? Hi, who's this?
3: Hi, this is Mary. Go ahead, Mary. Hi Mary. Hi, hi Bob and Dave. I have a question about cabbage um, in the garden. Sometimes it looks like something's been eating the cabbage right up the middle. Um,
2: yes. Oh, All right. go ahead. I'm just Do you already know what
3: that is? <laughs> <laughs> Can
1: you describe it a little bit more? To be, uh, has it actually been consumed on the outside?
3: No, it's yeah. like they start and they go like right up the middle, like um like you were eating it, and they it's just right up the middle of the cabbage um and i I don't find it's not on all the cabbage, and okay. there's been some years where we've seen this, and then there's been some uh green residue left, and I don't know if that's related or if that was something separate.
1: oh, yeah, it could be something separate, you know the first thing I suspect uh you're familiar with the phenomenon of cabbage splitting, where they'll they'll actually split right down the right down the middle, as opposed to being consumed from the outside. Now they obviously, uh, you know, if you got cabbage, you have a deer issue. We've got uh, other no, uh, mam- no mammals. No deer. No deer issue at all. Uh, oh. You know, it doesn't sound to me like usually when we got an animal that comes along that's going to consume it, that you'll see those, you know, the the munching from the outside in rather than a clear split down the center. So uh, one of the phenomena of of cabbage, and what we saw, we had this rainy period uh, last weekend, I believe it was. And uh, oftentimes cabbage that are mature, we get this sudden surge of water, and the the roots pick up the moisture, and they'll actually split internally. So I'll give you a little tip in what I try to do. I get out there when they're mature. I don't want to harvest them yet. Cabbage will make it through this, uh, certainly through this cooler period we got coming. But uh, I'll just take the head of cabbage and give it a little jerk that knocks off the, don't pull them out of the ground, but give them a little tug. And that actually breaks some of the finer root root fibers, and uh, the plant can't pick up as much moisture, so you don't run into this splitting kind of phenomenon. Most of the insect pests, and I might also say this, with the moisture we've had, we are seeing some rot on the cabbage as well. So that could be part of the phenomenon, just too much moisture, too much rot. It may not actually be an animal issue because of the way you describe it being internally within the cabbage itself there. So I think it's probably one of those issues. Um, I'm thinking it's
3: an animal because I've gone back out and then there's other, it, it's just disappearing. <laughs> there's oh, more oh, parts of the cabbage. Oh. Oh, so I don't okay. know, but why would they pick one cabbage over another? I don't know. Uh, a I way don't to know either.
1: Maybe, maybe they're real fussy. I'm not really sure. Um, what else do you have working in the area? Certainly, do you have a. Uh, you're going to peppers. eliminate deer. Have you seen yeah, skunks? eliminate deer. We've,
3: it could be um, we have green peppers and tomatoes in the area.
1: Any other Any other pests? I'm thinking of possibly skunks working there. Oh, they I work?
3: guess they could get through the fence. Yes. Um, okay.
1: You know, I would I would suspect them, they, the skunk population in certain areas has been very high. Do you see any uh, pocketing in your lawns at all when you get up
3: in the no, morning? No, uh, no. None of that at all? No. Well,
0: it, any it, telltale smell?
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, on other occasions, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: I know that uh, this year my corn crop, the skunks have been after that, and even though they're uh, they must be omnivores, they like the insects that are down in the soil, but they also will take vegetative material, so I'm kind of, and you don't see them there at night, so I think that might be a possibility right there. For sure. Okay,
3: do you suggest putting a dome thing over the cabbage at all to to protect them?
1: To protect them? You know what you could do? I'm kind of a big fan of, uh, you know, we've got covering materials called Remy, which is a spun polyester fabric, but we've also got knitting, maybe quarter-inch knitting. Yeah. And I think the purchase, you can use this year after year, so the purchase of all of that i think that will do two things for you first it protects from the cabbage worm butterfly and the imported cabbage moth butterfly which you will see earlier in the year the cabbage looper and uh that butterfly has to the adult has to deposit its, its eggs. so that keeps the that keeps the butterfly out so you get protection that way and that should also protect from uh this kind of damage the deer could probably paw their way through that but certainly for skunks i think that would protect so you can purchase uh, it's about quarter-inch uh, poly-webbing, a uh, kind of a blanket to, to cover them up, and I think that would be a very good investment for you because you get protection from the insects, you get protection uh, from uh, any critters that might be out there.
3: Yeah, maybe we did have a stray skunk go through there. Okay.
1: Thank All you right, much. thanks for your help. Thank you for the question. I'm sure that other people, and when you mentioned it internally, uh, that's what got me going down this line, but that's been a problem too. I've seen that at my cabbage where we're we're getting just a little too much moisture that's being picked up, uh, particularly with that rain event we had last uh, last weekend. Alright, we're
0: going to take another break, Bob, and then we'll be back to wrap up the show. Alright, Bob, we got uh, time, I guess, to talk about the farmer's market, which I'm sure is going to be overflowing with goodies tomorrow.
1: Lots of stuff, because there was a lot that was harvested, I'm sure. <laughs> so there should be there should be a lot of the uh, the fall crops, a lot of tomatoes and so forth. You know, that's the original farmers market. It will be warm in there because mm-hmm. we've got uh, a nice covering, which has been really nice. So we want to, you know, I think about all those that came before us. I mentioned the pioneers that developed the apples and so forth, and uh, here we had our local farmers around the turn of the century. That building was built in 1908 and uh, still structurally strong today, and new roof on it, so it's really nice. Fourteenth Avenue East and Third Street. And then, uh, two to five, of course, on Wednesdays and eight until noon on Saturday. Say, Dave, can I mention one other, um, yeah. activity coming up? Our St. Louis County Map Gardeners have their fall bulb and plant sale. That's going to be at the same weekend that the, uh, the Apple Fest is. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can pick up both, but that's <laughs> going to be Saturday, uh, and it'll run from nine until one. Uh, they made quite an effort. Uh, this is perfect timing because these are for spring flowering bulbs. And uh, they've got daffodils, alliums, hyacinths, of course, a lot of tulips. I think they've got over 2,000 bulbs that they've been packaging and repackaging. And uh, it's going to be down at the depot. It's going to run from 9 to 1. There's going to be plenty of parking. They've thought of everything, even uh, if you need help bringing your product back to a, one of the parking lots. There's plenty of free parking on the weekends down there. Uh, they've got runners for you with wagons. So they're thinking about everything. And you know this is an educational program, so they'll have an Ask the Master Gardener booth there. They'll have a number of uh, beautiful displays. So it's going to be a real nice event down at the depot. uh, That's uh, 506 West Michigan Street, right downtown Duluth, and uh, lots and lots of spring bulbs. And we really recommend planting bulbs uh, for spring beauty, as well as production, in the case of garlic, uh, about October 15th. So you can line up nice, fresh bulbs, all new, and uh, you've got a week to get them in the ground, or you can plant them over the next two weeks. So Go run, nice Bob. We'll
0: catch you next week on Tuesday, right here, the Bob Olin Show on KDAL.